Um, for those of you guys who don't know me, my name is Brandon. If you guys do know me, you probably know that I get really easily distracted. And uh, this week, as I was writing this sermon, I had kind of one of those moments where I really should be working, I really should be cranking on this thing, and I just had this distraction that kept coming to my mind, this random question, one of those ones, maybe you guys can relate, that has no bearing on your life. It really doesn't matter one bit, but you just can't get it out of there. I kept thinking, Brandon, that's what I do when I talk to myself, Brandon, I, I wonder how many words the average person says in a lifetime. And then I answer myself, Brandon, that's, that's a great question. Ah, it's a really good one. So I went to the source of all things, all answers for things like this. I went to Wiki Answers. I went to Yahoo Answers, all those hard-hitting journalistic sources. And I found, even on the credible sources that I went to, that there was kind of a standard range. And I wonder, if you guys actually want to turn to your neighbor, give your best guess, how many words does the average person speak in a lifetime? What do you think? Don't get out your phones, no cheating. You guys got your answers out there? All right, here it is. You guys can check your answer against this one. The range is a wide one. It's 370 to 870 million words. Were you guys close? If you're wondering why, that's a huge range, right? Like, that's a big swing. If you're wondering why, ladies, I think we can thank you for that. Because if the New York Times is correct, they say that in an average day, women, you speak over 20,000 words. 20,000, well over actually. Men, we speak (laughs) 7,000, let's give us some credit here, 7,000 words for the average man, but three times less almost. So I guess we could deduce from that, like maybe women, you have like so much more valuable, important things that you need to communicate, right? Yeah. Or guys, maybe it's that we understand supply and demand. And when supply is low, the value goes up, right? I don't know. I'll let you husbands and wives fight about that. Um, In your lifetime, though, 370 to 870 million words. Some of those words, I'm sure, are words that we regret. Some of them are words that we wish we had said more of. The I love yous, the I'm proud of yous, the Detroit Lions just made the playoffs, yahoos. We don't get to say that enough, do we? But there's a few words in a person's life that become sacred. Words that are just clung to. A good example would be words that are said on a deathbed. When words are few and you know you just have a little bit of time left, every phrase is precious. And if you've ever been in like a hospital room of a terminal patient, we just instinctively know this and everyone kind of leans in and we listen really close. We hang on every single syllable because we know how sacred these words are. In this passage today, Psalm 22, it's a deathbed psalm. These are the words that passed from Jesus' lips as he hung on the cross. After being silent for so long, these are the words that he started quoting off. And my hope is today that we'll all just take a little chance to to really lean in close and see what it is that God would be saying here. 
But before we rush to, to Jesus on the cross with his words, we've got to first look at what they meant to their original author, what they first really meant to the people who would have heard them first. And what we're going to find is that there's really kind of two key truths that we'll be looking at today. The first one is, it is okay to experience pain in this life. Let me just say that again. It's okay to experience pain and suffering and torment in this world. And two, if we truly understand the cross, it's going to shape how we experience that pain. It may not be what you guys expect. It doesn't mean that Christians always have to have a smile on their face, but it will change how we experience pain. And I want to be real upfront with you guys. I have a goal, maybe a hidden agenda. I guess it's not so hidden if I'm throwing it out right now. But I have an agenda here that I want us to really realize that it seriously is okay to feel pain, to feel betrayal, to suffer in this world and cry out saying, God, what is going on? I don't really get it. And I think the church today has really forgotten that. We've become emotionally constipated. My wife hates that I'm going to say that, but that's really the only thing that I could think of on it. Is we become emotionally constipated. We locked up. We numb out, we avoid, we ignore, we stuff, we explode. It's like if people come over, we just don't think it's okay to to experience sadness. In the same way that if you come over to my house and I've got clothing out, I quick run and I stuff it in the hamper as quickly as I can and I put the lid on it. But the problem with pain is as you stuff and you stuff, it's like that clothes hamper that eventually it just explodes out. It can't contain it. And when we stuff and we numb and we ignore, eventually that pain begins to leak out in ways that you don't want. We've got to grieve. And it's okay. I want to give us some practical tools today for how do we grieve and how do we experience a broken world. So turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. While you guys are turning there, you guys might already be there from earlier. You got your fingers there. Greg gave you a little tip off where we're going. I want us to read it with two things in mind. This first time when we read it, I want us to read it thinking about how it was originally written. By a man in immense pain. A man who was just being real with his God. And when you read it that way as a second thing, I want you to ask yourself, do you have that same freedom to talk with God like this? Do you give yourself that same license to experience pain? Or does this just kind of like explode your religious paradigm? So go ahead and stand up. I won't read the whole thing. I was going to, but since you guys have spent some time in it, I'll just give you the first few verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you're enthroned as the Holy One. You're the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and they were saved. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. But not me. Me, I'm a worm. I'm a man. I'm scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Go ahead and grab a seat. Do you guys feel it? Do you feel David's pain here? 
Can you see the desperation this dude has as he's just crying out before God? This is one of the reasons that I love the Psalms. This is one of the reasons that I love the Bible. It's real and it's raw and it's full of real people. It gives us a window into heart, into personality, into emotions that we don't often get. And when I don't spend time in the Psalms, I get this really bad habit where I start reading about people like Moses, people like David, and I just start thinking like, oh yeah, David, he's that shepherd guy who became king. David, he's that kid with the stone who took down a giant. And they almost become more story than man. But when I dive into the Psalms, I just find this guy who's a real person, who wrestled with real pain and real emotion and real desperation, just like me. And it's just comforting, and it reminds me how real they are. And I don't know, though, how this level of authenticity fits with our theology. But the psalmists were raw. Seriously, so raw. They're willing to put it out there. The good and the bad and the ugly, they're willing to be known. And it makes me jealous. It makes me jealous because I feel like the church today, we don't let ourselves be known. We've lost this transparency, this willingness to be known. Everyone gets kind of like the Facebook Facebook profile view of us, just what we want them to see. I wonder, how many people right now in your life know the pain that you really wrestle with? Maybe know the doubts that you have. Maybe doubts about God, but maybe doubts about yourself. Doubts how you're doing as a a husband or wife. Doubts about how you're doing as an employee. Doubts about how you're doing as a Christian. Maybe I'm the only one. I'll be honest with you guys. I wrestle with these all the time. How am I doing as a husband? I feel like I'm just blowing it. How am I doing as a friend? How am I doing as a pastor? How many people get to see that side of you? How many people maybe see that perennial struggle to really accept that God loves you as much as he says he does? Or for some of you, the fear that maybe that's still not enough and you look for it in other places. When's the last time even that we really allowed ourselves not just to wrestle like that in front of other people, but to wrestle with God? We have a God who's not afraid of a good wrestling match. And for one, I'm thankful of that. All throughout scripture, you see people wrestling with God. And I honestly think it's a sign of intimacy when we can wrestle with them. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, if a stranger does something that offends me, if a stranger does something that, that hurts me, I'll rarely say something. I don't really, I just kind of let it go, go. But if my wife does something that hurts me, I'm right there telling her, baby, like that, that hurt, that stung when you did that. Because there's intimacy and there's a willingness to wrestle through pain and difficulty. And God, he gives us permission to wrestle. I wish I could say the church was an easy place to do this, that you'd find camaraderie, that there'd be kind of like a a little wrestling mat here and we'd just say, you know what, bring your cares to God. Come here, just throw it out there. Let's be real with each other. But honestly, I, I don't think it always is. But what if? What if the church was a safe place where you didn't have to pretend they had it all together? In all honesty, I, I think Crossroads does better than most. I think Crossroads is led by a guy in, in Rod that he comes up here and he just throws out his insecurities. He throws out his failings and he's honest and he's real and he's raw. And that's kind of permeated. And more than any church I've ever been in, we can be real here. 
Mark's story even was a great example of just being real and being raw. But even here, I still, I hear these things sometimes where someone will start to open up and they'll share something and someone will give one of these trite little statements that just like shuts down the pain and says, we got to act, you can't bring that here. You got to act like it's all okay. And I'm even guilty of saying these myself. It happens in that moment where someone like is pouring out their heart. Maybe they're crying. They're just sharing with you and they're sharing all this great stuff and it's deep and it's painful. And then there comes that awkward moment, that awkward moment when they stop talking and they look right at you and you know you have to say something and you have no idea how to respond to that. So you reach down in and you pull out kind of the first trite little statement that someone has said to you before. And you say something like, could always be worse. At least it's not as bad as what so-and-so is going through. And what that sounds like to the sufferer is it sounds like you should just stop complaining. You should just be happy. You know what? Stop being such a wimp. Your pain really isn't that bad. And it just shuts it down. And to that I want to say, you don't think I don't know that it could be worse? You don't think that I don't know that so-and-so has it worse than me, but for a second, can we just stop and say it sucks pretty bad as it is? Sometimes the best thing that we can do for a person who's in pain is just be with them, commiserate. In fact, I think it's one of the things that we long for in our pain more than anything else is companionship. Someone to just sit with us and say, that stinks. I'm so sorry. I hope you know that I love you, though, that I'm here for you. Fellas, I'm telling you, I think your wife wants this more than an answer a lot of times. We're so quick to just try to fix it or try to make it go away or make it be okay. But I want to tell you, pain is pain. Suffering is suffering. And guess what? We're allowed to feel it as Christians. And please hear me say, it's okay to count your blessings. It's okay to help someone count your blessings. I think that's actually a great sign of health when you can do that. But you're able, as a general rule, you're able to count your blessings a lot more genuinely when you're able to grieve your losses too. And David illustrates that for us. Let me give one more just bad way that I sometimes hear. I hear it a lot. Like I said, I've said these myself, but when someone's in pain, we also just come to them and we give this whole, God has a plan. You just don't see it yet. And there's truth in that. God has a plan, but it would be so much better to say God has a plan. He just hasn't done it yet. God's plan is Revelation 21 and 22, where every tear will be wiped from every eye. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more suffering. But it's not here yet. And instead, though, I think we settle for this, these little things, this little plan of like, you know what, you gotta, you gotta actually go on kind of an Easter egg hunt and figure out why it's okay that your husband is physically abusing you. It's so much better to point him to the big plan, the ultimate plan that God has in this. And Psalm 22 lets us know it's okay to be upset about these little things. Look at the questions David throws out. Go back to verse 1. He would have been shut down, I feel like, in most churches. But verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? He's saying, where are you, God? Where are you? 
I don't see you. I don't see you stepping up to the plate here for me, God. Where are you? Verse 2, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. God, do you even care? Do you even care what's going on here? Yet you, you're enthroned as the Holy One. You're the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. God, I'm crying out. Your word says you're faithful. Your word says that you've done it in the past. Where are you now? To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But me, I'm a worm. I'm not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. God, they weren't shamed, but I'm not even human. I'm like a worm here. Everyone scorns me. Everyone mocks me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Do you hear the questions in this? God, where are you? God, do you even care? God, you saved others, but where are you for me? Guys, I've been here before. I've asked these questions. I'm still here sometimes. Do you know what it's called when we get real and we ask sometimes the questions that our heart's wrestling with? It's called a lament. We live in a world that's broken. We live in what theologians call the already, but the not yet. We live in a world where we already have so many blessings in Christ, so much that's been done for us, but there's still pain. And there's still brokenness. And we're still waiting for Revelation 21 and 22. And one of the big gifts of Scripture to help us get through this time before the times is lament. God gives us this gift, but I feel like as a church we've just ignored it. I didn't hear many messages growing up on how to lament. I didn't sing many worship songs that were actually laments. And as a result, I wonder if I didn't grow up just afraid to talk like this with God. Our theology says you can't be frustrated with God. He's God. So you stuff, you numb out with alcohol, with drugs, with pornography, with busyness, with work, with cars, with house projects. We we do anything to escape it. And we put on a smile because that's what a Christian does, right? I'm not trying to shatter any paradigms here. But you know what the most common type of psalm in the Bible is? It's not a praise. It's not a thanksgiving. It's a lament. David, a man after God's own heart, the greatest king of Israel, he cried out before the Lord in a way that I seldom dare to. And you might be saying, what's a lament? I never learned how to do this either. It's really simple. I was going to give you guys like the form because they all seem to follow it. But honestly, I don't even think I have to. Because what happens is when you get real and you get raw with God and you bring your pain to him and you lay it at his feet and you cast your cares on him because he cares for you, it just naturally flows out. It starts off and it's rough. For me, in seminary, I really began to lament for the first time and I started expressing things before God that I've never expressed to anyone. Words that had never come out of my mouth started just flowing from my pen to them. And what I found was that it followed the exact pattern of Scripture without even trying to. I'd start off writing kind of these nasty things and just these accusations and these questions about God. And by the way, we can respect God. We don't have to be nasty. I'm not saying that. But I was, and I was throwing this stuff out there. 
And pretty soon after about 20, 30 minutes, I'd look at what I was writing and it was like, but I'm going to praise you and you're awesome and God, you're faithful and I can just rest in you. Laments follow this set pattern and they just kind of come out. And as Christians, I'm telling you, we have a gift in it. You have a God who says to cast your cares on him. You have a God who gives us example after example in the Bible of what it looks like to lament. And I don't see him smack in the hand of David for writing like this. And that's part of the secret, though, is that we have to embrace the pain of this world. You have to embrace it. When I was a kid, I I took up fishing and I became obsessed with fishing. I got really into it and I bought into this lie that most fishermen buy into that if you just get the perfect lure, you'll catch tons of fish. And so I was this middle schooler and every scrap of allowance I got, every Christmas gift that I asked for, it was fishing lures. And pretty soon I had this tackle box that was about up to here on me. It was huge. I mean, I'd have to walk around with this thing and as I'd walk with it, I'd lean to the side And I'd like lift it with my leg and swing this tackle box around. I mean, I had Rapalas. I had Shad Wraps. I had Sluggos. You want to know what a Sluggo is? It's about three wasted dollars. That's what it is, okay? I didn't catch anything on that thing. But one of the things that happens when a middle schooler gets a a giant tackle box full of hooks is that they get stuck in everything. I mean, everything around the house. The drapes, the carpet, my clothing was just like jeweled in fish hooks. And after several like rips in my shirts and my jeans and my shorts, I figured out the secret to getting a hook out of something. Your immediate reaction is you want to just jerk it out. But because of that barb, it just shreds it and it makes a little hole into a big hole. The secret with a fish hook is you've got to push it through. And pain is the exact same way. You've got to embrace it. You've got to push it through. The natural reaction is to to want to rip it out, to distance yourself as quickly as you can from it. Maybe to ignore it and act like it's not even there. But pain, you have to embrace it. You have to grieve it. And you know how a lament ends? You know what it looks like when you embrace pain? Psalm 22, if you look at verse 22, it ends in the exact same way that every lament ends. It ends with hope. It ends with praise. Look at this. Remember David started off with this, God, where are you? I don't, I don't see you. And then he ends with, I declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the descendants of Jacob, all of you guys, honor him. Revere him, all the descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. David goes from feeling abandoned to like charging everyone around him. You guys have got to come worship this God that we serve. He pushed it through. We have a God who cares, guys. We have a God who says, like I just said, cast your cares on him for he cares for you. But there's a big problem with this psalm. I don't often say this with passages of Scripture. In fact, I don't think I've ever said that there's a problem with a passage of Scripture, but there's a big one with Psalm 22. The problem is we have David who writes this huge descriptive psalm about all this stuff that's going on, but when you look at David's life, 
It's almost like he's lying. Nothing in David's life seems to fit this situation. David suffered more than most people. I mean, as a kid, he was like borderline neglected. He was overlooked for sure. They like ask for all the sons, Samuel does, and and David isn't even brought there. He's not even invited to watch. He's just forgotten about. When he gets a little older, he goes and he serves Saul, and Saul tries to kill him for it. He has to flee his country, go live with the Philistines. And in order to survive there, he has to fake like he's gone mad and let drool dribble from his chin. Later on, he, grows, he gets older, he gets married, he has kids, he has a, a beautiful daughter that he loves and he cares about, and that daughter is raped by one of his very own sons. He has another son that kicks him out of the throne, and he has to go on the run, and that son publicly shames him while he's gone, does all these things. He has to bury loved ones. He's, he's has rocks and dirt thrown upon him. He's mocked. David has suffered so much in his life. But when you read this psalm, it's beyond pain. It's beyond persecution. This psalm is an execution. Look at verse 6 through 8. This guy's in public, being treated like a worm and not a man. He's mocked and he's rejected by all who see him. Verse 15, he's dying of thirst. He's he's, He's even deprived of water. His hands and his feet, they're pierced. People are watching all this happen and they're gloating over him. Verse 17, all of his bones are on display to the public. Verse 18, this is kind of like the, the sealing verse here. But it says that his clothing is given away. It's even gambled for. At an execution, the executioners for doing a good job were, were given a little special bonus. They got the clothing of the person who was executed. And that's what's being described here. What do you do with that? Jews today have no idea what to do with Psalm 22. There's all kinds of interesting theories. I spent a while reading them on the internet this week. Some people think it must be Esther. This must, David must be like kind of knowing something about Esther and our foretelling of that. And that just doesn't seem to really fit with what's going on. And so some said, well, maybe it's Hezekiah. That's what's going on here. This was really a psalm of Hezekiah. But again, it really doesn't fit. So some people have come up with this theory that when nothing else fits, you just kind of invent something that will. And so they have this like, maybe there was a ritual that we don't really know anything about, but where the king yearly was brought out and he was publicly like given a fake execution to keep him really humble. That must be what's going on here in Psalm 22. And really, that's not based off of any evidence. It's based off of passages like this that they have no idea what to do with. But something even more troubling, even if you take that view, something you still can't explain happens, and it happens in verse 27. It's more than the execution. This death, this execution in verse 27 says, "...all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord." All the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Skip down to verse 30. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he's done it. Name one person in the world whose death has brought nations to their knees in worship. One person whose death has been foretold from generation to generation to generation saying his righteousness and he's done it. I can only think of one. 
Clearly, something bigger than David is going on in this psalm. And the apostle Peter nails it. It's Pentecost, okay? Jesus has just been taken up. The Holy Spirit's just come down. And Peter gives this big speech. And in Acts 2, verse 30, he says that David, being therefore a prophet, foresaw and spoke of the Christ. David, in his pain, is crying out to the Lord. And whether he realizes it or not, he's actually foretelling the suffering that the Christ will go through. And all through the Bible, you see this. You see like an event. You see something that happens that really has a much deeper meaning. It finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Let me just say like, take the bronze serpent. Okay, that weird Old Testament story. Israel's failing God. They're, they're making mistakes. And as a result, there's these deadly snakes that come out and they begin to bite people. And these people begin to die. And you say, that's really weird gets even weirder because God says, you know what, I want you to make a bronze serpent and lift it up. And when you get bit by these snakes, I want you to just look at that serpent and you'll be healed. And it works. And what that teaches Israel is one, that they're guilty, that they're deserving of punishment, but two, that by looking to God in their time of need, by looking to him and having faith, God heals them and he saves them. And then Jesus steps onto the scene in John 3 and he says, you know what, that bronze serpent, you think it means that, but it means so much more than that because he says, I'm the bronze serpent. I'm the one who's lifted up. And when you're bitten, when you're guilty, when you're deserving in death, when you look to me, you'll be forgiven and you'll be saved. That's the way of the Bible. Things, small things that teach us one thing become even bigger in light of Christ. And that's what David is doing here. Is David thinking about the Messiah when he wrote this? I don't know. But God clearly was. And let me prove it. Let's look just briefly at the parallels between Jesus' death and this psalm. So what I want you to do is hold the crucifixion in your mind. You guys, most of you are probably pretty familiar with it. And let's read this psalm and think about it in that. Jesus quotes this psalm, the first and the last words of it. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's the first verse of the psalm. And he also quotes the last. He's done it. It's better translated. It's finished. And when he quotes the first and the last, what he's really saying is this whole thing is about me start to finish. Look at verse 6. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Verse 14. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. That's crucifixion where it just jerks everything out of place. My heart is turned to wax. It melts within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. I thirst. Verse 16, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Continuing, all my bones are on display. People stare and they gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garment. I don't know about you guys, but this should give you such a confidence in your Bible. This was written a thousand years before Christ. David wrote this a thousand years before the cross ever happened, but it's written like it could have been John or Peter sitting there at the cross taking notes and writing this thing out. This should give us 
such confidence. It's, it's beyond, like, too good to be true, but it's right here in our hands. Let me fast forward just a little bit. Let me jump to the question of this series. Why did Jesus have to suffer and die? Why does Psalm 22 even have to be in our Bibles? Verse 27 makes it really clear that his death was going to turn people to God, entire nations and generation after generation. And that's pretty huge for sure. But I think that Psalm 22 shows us even more than that. I think Psalm 22 shows us that the the cross is complex, the cross is huge, and I think there's a reason why it's such a graphic and painful death. You see, Jesus' death makes sense of our suffering in this world. David's suffering found its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. It answers, the cross answers that question of, God, do you even care? Earlier I mentioned that in our pain we crave companionship maybe most of all someone to just sit with us and say that stinks i'm so sorry i hope you know that i love you christianity is the only religion in the world that has a god who saw the brokenness in the world and he came down and he was willing to experience it and he was willing to experience rejection and suffering on our behalf And as such, we have something the world can't even fathom. We have what Hebrews 3 and 4, Greg's going to preach on it next week, so I don't want to do too much with it. But it, it just says that we have such a confidence to draw near to God because he can empathize with us in our weakness. He's experienced the sufferings of this world. He knows what it's like to be hungry, to be beaten, to be rejected, to be betrayed. Earlier I told you guys too to push into the pain, to push it through, to embrace it. I want to tell you guys, even beyond that, we need to embrace Christ's pain. Only by embracing Christ's suffering and pain poured out for you, do you really have a hope. The kind of hope that the world doesn't have any idea what it is. Let me give you guys two practical examples, and then we're done. These are the last two. Two practical examples that when you press into Christ's pain, it changes how you suffer in this world. The first one comes from the first verse of the psalm, and the second one comes from the last verse. The first one. Some of you guys know what it's like to face rejection in this world. How do you overcome Neglect and abuse and rejection. You overcome it by realizing that there's a far worse rejection than we've ever experienced. A rejection from God. And when you look to Psalm 22 and when you look to the cross and you see Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see the ultimate form of rejection. And you see that Jesus takes the ultimate rejection, rejection from God, separation from him, and he takes it so that you'll never have to experience it. And that right there will change how you experience the rejections of this world. And the second one is when we experience agony, when you don't even want to wake up out of bed, you don't want to go on, this life just doesn't seem worth living, there's so much pain so much hardship. We find the, the strength to press in knowing that this is a temporary situation. 
Revelation 21 and 22 are coming. And on the cross, Jesus yelled out, It's finished! And what that means is there's kind of a famous example, and it's, it's during World War II. When the Allies took the beach at Normandy, everyone who knows military history, everyone who knows military strategy knew that the war was pretty much over. At that point, the war was won. It didn't end right there. In fact, there was some of the most bloody and brutal fighting that took place after that point. But the victory really was decided right there. And in the same way on the cross, when Jesus cries out, it is finished. The end is secure. There's a time coming. He's coming back. And the victory is assured. And there's going to be no more pain, no more crying, no more tears. But we're still in this side where there's some of the most bloody and gruesome fighting going on. And there's still suffering. But we suffer through it knowing that it's temporary. Knowing that the end is secure. That it was completed on the cross. That it was decided. God has a plan in all this. He just hasn't done it yet. Let's pray. God, you're a God that we can be real with, and I just thank you for that. You're a God that when this world brings us down, when there's suffering and there's pain, you can relate because you came down and experienced it. God, give us just an eager anticipation for what is to come. Jesus' precious and holy and saving and returning name. Amen.